Kia ora koutou. welcome to the panel RNZ National. With me, Associate Professor Peter Field and Alan McElroy this afternoon, Friday afternoon. Nice to have your company. Now, first to this, the pressure on patients entering the health system has been front and centre in the news this past week, has it not? And there is also huge pressure on those working within the health system. And this was addressed in an editorial in the New Zealand Medical Journal today on just how serious this issue is becoming, detailing why suicide rates among doctors tend to be higher than the general population and concern over increased mental distress within the profession. And meanwhile today, Health NZ has unveiled an interim plan at Te Pai Tata to tackle wait times, worker shortages with a huge range of performance measurements, quote-unquote. With us to discuss is Roger Mulder, Professor in Psychiatry at the University of Otago and who co-authored the article with the New Zealand Medical Journal's Editor-in-Chief and Surgeon Frank Frizzell. Professor Mulder, kia ora. Oh, hi. This is really tragic, isn't it? I mean, no one, no one should be at the point where you strive to be part of a profession that you love and you're committed to only for it to cause you such extreme mental distress, Roger. Yeah, yeah, I think that's true. And I think there's a, quite a few doctors who sort of feel unable to deliver the care that they feel their patients need. And they actually get quite guilty about they can't do that, but the events beyond their control. And then, you know, then you get emotionally exhausted and then you get sort of disengaged. And I think that's the real danger. People sort of think, oh, there's nothing I can do anyway. And then they get mm. sort of cynical about the whole system and, and then they get burnt out. And so and then they don't work as well. So the whole thing's a vicious cycle where people get, you know, the staff become disengaged and mm. the system starts to fail even more. Yeah, that interest that was very interesting uh, to me in, in the editorial. You know that, that mention. I think you mentioned the notion of uh, good doctoring coming into play. You know, doctors can really suffer guilt for events that really beyond their control. Yeah, that's right. I think that's that's the real issue. And also, I think at the moment they can't see an end to it. You know, it's almost with COVID. It was like, well, this will come to an end at some point, and things will be right. better. But I think there's now this feeling of actually we've got this chronic. Workforce shortage. Um, we don't know how we're going to fix it, and yeah, uh, and I mean, as you say, the intermittent plan slightly worries me if it's going to involve more administration and more forms, because the evidence again is that doctors actually, most of them, like the face-to-face patient contact, but the things they don't like and the things that burn them out are having to do administration, they're having, and complaints and all of all of those sort of procedures are what actually affects them, not seeing patients and doing their work. That's the bit they like. And I think uh, that issue was um, really brought to the fore on Morning Report a couple of days ago. Uh, an expert, a health expert saying actually performance measures and targets are, are on the ground quite complicated. Yeah, I think that's right. And if you're going to do them, they ha- they, you really need the involvement of the people who are going to have to fill them out and they have to measure something meaningful and they have to then have a purpose. So if something is found, that something will change rather than they're just performance indicators. The, the performance indicators should should lead to something constructive. Otherwise, there's no point in just having performance indicators. 
All right, we have a panel with us, of course. Um, Peter, let's bring you in your your thoughts, your, your your comments on this. You might even have been to your local or your former DHB and seen it yourself. Well, I think it's fair enough to say that for most of us who are healthy and not in the healthcare system, we don't really pay attention yeah. to those who are in it and they're struggling, then they certainly see it at the front line. Look, I have an excellent doctor, Dr. Mackay, and she's always upbeat right. and ready to take, take her time. Um, so that's a great thing. Um, but I'm sure that's not true for everyone everywhere. Um, you know, my, my question would be twofold. First of all, are suicide rates measurably higher among physicians and surgeons? And is that uh, attributable to their work or the nature of the human beings they are? That's a good question, and it's probably a bit mm. of both. So, I mean, uh, we at the moment, the, uh, we don't have good New Zealand data, which I think is one of the other surprises, is we don't actually have any idea how many New Zealand doctors commit suicide because we don't keep that data. But internationally, the evidence suggests that, yeah, doctors are, they're sort of, the things that help you be a doctor, a bit of perfectionism, competitiveness, those sort of traits are not necessarily that helpful when you become distressed. You know, you might you not go. seek help. Yeah. You might right. not look at, for help. So, uh, and then you get work that's difficult, and then you get a complaint on top of that, and then something goes wrong at home, and that's the sort of pattern that leads to it. So, yeah, it's usually not one thing. It's usually that, um, yeah, things just go wrong in more ways, and certain specialties are more, well, it depends on the what data you look at, but for example, there's a recent study suggested um, emergency department physicians and GPs had higher rates of suicide than other specialties, but that's, yeah, somewhat contradictory, but yeah, it's a good question, and you're right, it's probably a combination of both plus things going wrong as well. Just coming back to that personal experience, though, Roger, because I have had that, uh, uh, you know, in hospital for uh, uh, quite a bit uh, last year, uh, 12 or so days, and uh, service was incredible, and the service I received and the staff um, around me, from the wound specialist to the surgeons, extraordinary. But what I could see, and it was really quite clear, just how under the pump they were, and also the manner in which some patients who were also very stressed spoke to staff were really, in my view, quite um, inappropriate, sometimes unacceptable. And yet here were the staff, they just had to wear it. Yes, yeah, I think that's true. And and uh, I think there are instances of that. And of course, when things go wrong and they get in the media, then that just increases the sort of, I guess, grumbling from people and yeah i think it's true people don't quite see and in some ways that's healthy see doctors in the way they did say 25 30 years ago right they would blindly obey them and that wasn't always a good thing so it's a mixture but you're right i do think there there is a considerable amount of disrespect particularly in certain areas in the hospital like ed and places like that and it is it does make the task harder there's no question let's bring uh, ellen in yeah, I was going to ask, uh, is it, you know, uh, how easy is it for, uh, say, doctors with international qualifications to to be adapted into uh, being a doctor or so in, in New Zealand? Just, it, it, this will sound ridiculous, but uh, an Uber driver last month was telling me that he's a doctor where he's from, and he was complaining that he it was too hard to be accepted as qualifications here. Is, is, that, is that a common thing? It's not It's not unknown, no. I mean, there are yeah. quality standards the Medical Council gets. Again, there's two issues here. One is the doctors coming in and 
end up working here, which can be an issue because they have to go through quite a uh, performance um, in order to do that. But the second thing is, certainly the case in the UK, is that immigrant doctors tend to have higher rates of burnout than uh, ones oh. who are locally trained. So it's a sort of two-edged thing, if you see what I mean. Um, yeah. So it can yeah, be yeah. more difficult to fit into a different system. We don't have data on that here, but certainly in the UK, there's data around that. So Just so, bring yeah. this issue, uh, Professor Moore, this issue of data, uh, yeah. again, addressed quite a bit in the editorial. Why are we not harvesting or collecting such data where it seems to be that quite a few countries are? Yeah, that's that's a good question. We are not. Our whole health system has never been sort of as evidence based, in my opinion, as in other health systems I've worked in. So, some health systems tend to evaluate what they do much more. They do pilot studies before they introduce things. We tend to say, "Oh, this is a good idea," and introduce it all over the country without necessarily assessing is it a good idea. Goodness. So, yeah, I do think there is just it's just the way we've tended to function. Um, I think. Again, having all district health boards made that more complicated. You would hope this new system might allow, you know, things to be assessed before something new is introduced and then assessed, evaluated to say, well, was that a good idea or not? Um, And I think the other thing is certainly a lot of staff feel is they're not involved in these decisions and changes. And I think that's been a real issue as well. They, they, now they may have been, but they certainly, well, anecdotally again, because we don't have data about that, is, huh. is that they feel like um, decisions are being made sort of on them rather than, than, than with them, if you like. Very good to have you on the program, Professor Moore. Kia ora. Thanks for your time. All right. Okay, thanks. That's Roger Mulder, their professor in psychiatry at the University of Otago. Co-authored a very interesting article, actually, in the New Zealand Medical Journal uh, with uh, surgeon Frank Frizzell saying, look, um, uh, staff are really, really uh, under the pump in a serious way. Now, if you are worried about you, uh, your or someone else's mental health, the best place to get help is your GP, your local mental health provider. However, if you or someone else is in danger or endangering others, uh, just call the police on 111. And helplines do include the likes of Lifeline on 0800 Eighteen past for the panel. Self-entitled. That is how the actions of influencers who got stuck in Iran have been described by a human rights advocate. Topher Richwhite and Bridget Thackeray entered Iran as part of what they dubbed the Expedition Earth World Tour, Instagramming up their scenic photos from waterfalls to landscapes, having a swim. In Iran, their movements were restricted, in fact, couldn't leave without government intervention. To what extent New Zealand diplomacy was required is still unclear. Meanwhile, for a second day in a row, tens of thousands of demonstrators protested across Iran against the country's uh, clerical rule. Uh, The government response has been described by the New York Times uh, as deadly. And there were protests outside the Iranian embassy today uh, in New Zealand. With us is human rights advocate uh, Samira Takavi, who actually said that, uh, self-entitled. Uh, Samira, kia ora. Welcome to the program. Good afternoon. Thank you so much for having me. So there was a warning that it was unsafe to travel to the country. You've described these actions as reckless Absolutely reckless, absolutely self-entitled. 
And I will be using the word, those words regularly and consistently from now on. And to me and to the Iranian community, I think that the Ardern government made an entirely bizarre decision in believing that it's best to put the interests of these two European New Zealanders engaged in only what I would call a trivial, decadent, influencing holiday over the desperation of millions of people suffering daily in Iran and the thousands of Iranian New Zealanders worried sick about their families there. It's just beyond me. Just just on that point, uh, Samira, and just on the particular travellers, whatever their uh, goals or I think it was really sort of that's the, the expeditionary scenery, the lived experience, sometimes it's the very allure of a place being dangerous or off the beaten track. That's is exactly why we want to go there. I mean, you can understand that, right? I really can't understand that because Iran is one, not one of those countries. The warnings in terms of traveling to Iran uh, since 2020, it's been, they've been very, very clear with the warnings in terms of why you shouldn't go to Iran. And there is a reason that millions of people actually left Iran in the past few years. Putting aside the travel ban or the travel restriction or the warning in terms of traveling to Iran, there is also a clear warning in terms of the drone ban in Tehran especially. Right. Yeah. Let me add to that. Let me add to that. So these two individuals, they decided to go to a country with a clear warning. Then they decided to use drones and having drones in the vehicle, which is also there's a clear ban on that. And thirdly, they decided to actually drive a car, which is in the list of banned vehicles in Iran. Yeah, I must admit, when I saw that they were using a drone, uh, kind of one would think, Peter, feel that your um, sensibility would kick in, go, okay, we're in Iran. Do we really need to be using drones for our photography or whatever? I'd be interested to hear yeah, well, what the listeners it, it, think it, on this. Idi- idiots are citizens too, so we have, we have what, to keep that in mind. So what, there's no way around that. What's your uh, take look, on this, Peter? Uh, look, my take on it is, look, we want to talk about Iran, the Revolutionary Guard. You want to talk about brave Iranians who have little power and are trying to take their country back, that's a topic to discuss. That's a great, important topic to discuss. Um, talking about Kiwi influencers, self-entitled, I just don't care. I trust really Samara's talking to us just because she right. wants to bring attention to the great crisis in Iran and who really cares about Kiwi idiots. Uh, oh, well, there you go. Pretty strong way. words from Peter. Are they Kiwi idiots? Is, uh, is Peter uh, and Samara <laughs> being too strong? Text me 2101. Or do we have a right, a fundamental human right to go to those um, places where they are um, often uh, not the safer places? Tell me, um, do you think, uh, Samira, I'll come to you very soon, Alan. Do you think that this the government had taken a softer stance on what is happening right now in Iran? If you ask me, they absolutely have, especially in the past six weeks. Their response to the human rights breaches in Iran, to the revolution happening, to the rape, torture and murder of thousands of people in the past six weeks, let alone the past 43 years, it's been absolutely silenced and their action been non-existent. They have recently uh, moved that motion, but we need way more than that. We don't need concerns. We don't need emotion. We need actions to be taken. I do not understand why the Iranian ambassador is allowed to stay in this country, enjoy the freedom of freedom he has in New Zealand, whilst our people are actually torturing and dying in Iran. 
Well, and diplomacy, they don't diplomacy is very important. It turns out I think you go too far there. It's very good to always be able to talk. So never rule out the diplomats. That, that's gone too far. Don't do that. I disagree with that, respectfully, because diplomacy, diplomats from Iran, they are part of that murderous regime. These are not usual diplomats that you deal with on a daily basis. So I, I do respectfully well, that, disagree that, that, with that's, that. That's for them to decide. They send diplomats, and it's a very good idea to hold on to your diplomats if you're not in a then, state of war. Then someone needs to answer this question for us. Why the Arden government... Four years ago, he listed the Proud Boys of America uh, and added them to the terrorist list here. Why the Iranian Revolutionary Guard hasn't yet been added to the terrorist list? All right, so there might be. Yeah, I was just going to say there might be some disagreement here, but there's absolutely agreement, um, unanimous. Uh, I'm with Peter and Samira on on the fact that by a hashtag Kiwi idiots uh, and self entitled dimwits, not my words, uh, listeners' words. Can we just have time to bring Alan McRoy in on this? Oh, I just add in more words, selfish muppets, uh, <laughs> and and they got away with it, and it's ridiculous. Mm. They shouldn't have got away with it. Uh, it's it's yeah it's not there is more important stuff happening you're told not to go and you bring drones and I think they were driving an American jeep was that what it was an American mm. army jeep everything they did was was wrong Muppets okay just finally Samira the UK announced travel bans and asset freezes on the Iran morality police Australia issued a statement condemning violent crackdown uh, following the death of the, of the 22 year old Maza Amini. What would you like our government to do? We have been very consistent. The first yeah. thing we want to happen, we want to see the Iranian Revolutionary Guard to be listed as a terrorist on the terrorist list. Then we want the same approach to be taken as other countries. We want sanctions on anyone related. We want travel ban on anyone related to the Iranian Revolutionary Guards in Iran. So we've been very clear in every statement we have made to the media. We only have three requests. They're not asking for financial support. People don't want to leave, live Iran. They want to stay there and they want to fight. We have so many human rights advocates and lawyers at the moment on hunger strike in Iran in the past two weeks. And I can tell you they will all die. This is coming from a personal experience when I was there as a 22-year-old. It's really nice to have you on the program, uh, Samira Kiora, and thank you very much for your time again. Thank you very much. That's Samira Tokavi, human rights advocate um, uh, from Iran on this issue, and really big response to this. Your panel is correct. Entitlement at its worst. Uh, and then I assume New Zealand taxpayer resources used to bail them out, complete numpties. We don't know that, but that's the, that's the text here. Absolutely agree that those two New Zealanders who went to Iran were selfish, attention-seeking idiots who should have been left there. Uh, that's pretty strong, but nonetheless, um, I do appreciate your sentiments coming through on the panel this afternoon. Now, uh, I guess the surprise, the other surprise topic this afternoon, which took me by surprise was the amount of interest we had in confirmations. Alan McRoy said that um, uh, he's going to go to a confirmation. For your daughter, is that right, Alan? It's my daughter. Yeah, my daughter's. Yeah. Uh, Minnie said a confirmation of what? Um, (laughs) (laughs) It's some Catholic stuff. It's yes. some cat. It's some cat. Quite a few people said, uh, "What is Ellen talking about? A confirmation?" But many of you have suggested gifts, including John, who's with us now. John, welcome to the panel. Thank you very much, Wallace. Can you? Can you? When did you get confirmed? 
Well, it's, it was about 57 years ago. I think I was uh, eight years old. Yeah. And when I heard it on the radio program, I um, just went back to that day. And I remember I, I had to wear a white shirt and it was the first time I wore a tie. And um, my, my mother's mother and father's friends, who I used to call Uncle and Auntie or Omer and Tanta, they gave me this beautiful fountain pen. Oh. And when I heard the word confirmation, I thought back to that fountain pen, which I sort of used for my whole professional life. So um, oh. quite happy to give Alan a tip there. It was a good gift. It's a good gift. I love it, a fountain pen. And you say that you've used it throughout your professional life. Yes, yes, I'm a retired lawyer, so it put me on the right track, I guess, pretty quickly. Beautiful. <laughs> how much? How much have I buy it off you now? <laughs> well, I, I, look, I, look, I'm not. I'm not a Catholic. In our religion, actually, we get congealed. It's a little different. <laughs> <laughs> congealed, yeah. Maybe you'll get crystallized. <laughs> John, that's actually a really heartwarming gift, and to think that here you are, eight years old, you've got your tie on, uh, and you, you, you've 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 taken that confirmation in a way throughout your life. Yeah, no, that's true. And Wallace, can I just add the Lord? The Lord does work in mysterious ways because I haven't been to church for um, a number of years, but I happen to be. In the uh, in the neighbourhood of my old parish church uh, this morning, and I, co- I I went in just to um, have a look around. Uh, there's some nice artwork there, and um, it was just before midday, and more and more people were coming in, and it happened to be a a mass. So I sat down and listened to a mass as well for half an hour. Oh, <laughs> and now you're on the panel. What That's a great right. Friday! Yes. Talking yeah. about confirmation. So, uh, <laughs> and pens. John, yeah. lovely, lovely to have you listening. Thanks for your time. Okay, thank you, Wallace. Always well, 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 Alan, uh, more feedback came through on, uh, on, on yeah. that. Um, no money for confirmation, maybe a spiritually related gift, a Ponamu cross Bible. Um, although Marianne Richmond says 50 bucks seems appropriate. That's uh, the one, $50, that, that's what she's getting in a card. <laughs> that, and, I'll, and I'll use a fancy pen, but she's not keeping it. And uh, when we made it in Ireland, <laughs> we went house to house and money. Like, that's what we did. They dress you up in a little suit, you know. Uh, I was obsessed with Elvis at the time, so I had a, a leather jacket and quiffed back hair. And you go around all your aunties, your relatives, oh. and they give you money. It was it was great. We made a fortune. <laughs> Kathy, good old days. Your good old days. Uh, did, do you know if you're confirmed, Peter? I don't know, but I know that in yeah. my religion, after eight days and you're a boy, something happens that's not quite confirmation. <laughs> gotcha. Yes, understood. Um, Something is confirmed. Before we go <laughs> to... <laughs> before we go to the news, Wallace, so this is really, I, I want to take time to read this uh, about Peter Fields. I've been thinking, uh, how do you know if you're left or right? I'm not sure what my reaction to being pursued by a police car at night indicates about my political leanings. I was being followed one night and the car lights were flashing. Not me, I thought. I'm warranted and registered and insured. Not speeding and using all the right signals. Next, the sirens surrounded behind me. Goodness me, someone's in trouble, I thought. Finally, I thought perhaps I should pull over and let the cops pass. Eventually, I discovered I had been driving without my lights on. The officer was a bit amused at my ignoring all his signals. What does this tell me about my left, right, 
orientation. Here on the panel are NZ National, Alan McRoy and Peter Fair with me very soon. One of the better Power Ballad Fridays you've ever heard. But for now, headlines.